Welcome to Talks News, your only source for undying loyalty to the regime. Let's say, for the sake of argument, that all of the water levels around the world rise by, by, let's say, five feet over the next hundred years. Say, ten feet by the next hundred years, and it puts all the low-lying areas on the coast underwater. Right? Which, let's say, all of that happens. You think that people aren't going to just sell their homes and move? Thank you for joining me on this very special day, October 31st, four days before the end of democracy as we know it within the United States of America. I am your host, the wacko weirdo, rebel scum, Jedi hero, live on Tox News, about to hit that stream button now that the King Gizzard and their Lizard Wizard has returned to their cavernous hole. It is time for me to begin the streaming so I do not get flagged and muted immediately. Streaming has been initiated. Thank you for joining me. Here is my whole setup on my OBS. Yes, it's me. As the title uh, says, we're going to get into Ben Shapiro's recap of the first uh, term of President Trump. I did listen to a bit of it. Uh, just about like 15 minutes of it just to see, you know, dip my toes in the water. Um, I didn't hear too much criticism and I don't think Ben Shapiro is very open to like saying that he's non-partisan. I think he's, he would probably admit that he's very partisan, that he's one-sided, extremely biased. It's Ben Shapiro's way, like as, as we understand and know Ben Shapiro at this point. So, um, just, you know. Be prepared for that when we actually get to it. I also wanted to just begin here as well with a bit of the headlines as we get the streaming underway rolling. Um, oh man, my VPN is on, so like none of this matters right here. Like I don't even know the trending in Italy is like GFVIPIS over party. I'm gonna click it just to see what the fuck's going on. Uh, this tweet here says, everyone wondering what's wrong with it? Nothing bad has passed on Gwenda. 
Simply 13-year-old girls who shouldn't even vote by regulation have created many emails to save Elizabeth's fake story. That's it. Hmm. This seems like something like a, like a Trump story going on in, in Italy right now. What? What? What is that? This picture is uh, a little much. Here's the photo... Antonella Elia is talking about whoa this is too hot to handle I gotta I gotta get out of that wow wawa weewa speaking of wawa weewa saw the Borat film subsequent movie film and you know it's uh it's good it's great I think it actually shows the progression of like American um ignorance just because he uses our ignorance of foreigners to exploit us and bring out the worst in us um, I don't think there was quite as many classic moments, maybe just because of the fact that like when Borat hit, it was fresh, new, and completely novel. Um, but I do think that Borat this time around did do a pretty significant job in showing a lot of people's biases and just the underbelly of America that we don't really talk about too much. Like it is there, especially when you get into the culture war segment of American uh, debate. Um, but it's... Uh, he was a, I think he was a little bit more subtle in that. And I liked how the movie actually focused more on his misogyny and relationship with women. Because I feel like that's something that we're still kind of dealing with in America. Yes, women can work. Yes, women can vote. And yes, women can drive. But there's still these uh, underlying um, ideas that we have of like what we really, what we perceive to be free human beings is not necessarily the same all around the world. And yet like Kazakhstan can hit like that machismo level of what Americans really believe uh, is machismo. So it's, it's, I don't know. Uh, I, I enjoyed it. I laughed very much, very nice. And um, yeah, subsequent movie film was good in my book. Um, the really Rudy Giuliani thing I think was blown a little bit out of proportion. I do think it's a ridiculous scene and he may or may not have been preparing to uh, masturbate or, get his get his freak on but for the most part it seemed like I'm, I'm a little bit in between it did seem like he was about ready to pull his harem out but um or harem how does how does borat say it? i think he says harem um he was it seemed to me that he was about to pull it out but um he did like stop it way before she actually saw rudy giuliani's harem so Subsequent movie film is out if you're looking for some laughs at Americans, if you're not American and you're listening or viewing this. Um, I, I highly endorse it. The first film, is, I think, is still one of the best caricatures of American society. Um, but the second one, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Uh, I might watch it a second time just to get like a better juice in it. You know, I might do that after this. I'm going to watch that again. Um, all right, but... We're going to get into some headlines before I get into Shappy Sharon. Um, I don't know what that nickname is. Holy fuck. Uh, so we got the U.S. breaking more records, motherfucker. We're number one. Um, I've been watching the COVID updates for the past few days since we started breaking 70,000 per day. COVID U.S. update. Let's check it. Uh, yesterday we had 98,000 new cases. 
Washington Post says 100,000. New York Times says 99,000. And we had about 97 new deaths. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, the White House oops, announces COVID is defeated. Uh, White House signals defeat in pandemic as coronavirus outbreak continues. Uh, let's see. White House Science Office takes credit for ending pandemic. Um, oh, three days ago, we actually have this right here. So four days ago, they said that they ended the pandemic. Pandemic's over. And then three days later, in Buffalo, New York, they have an article. Like, this is a local news channel that says this. Uh, White House walks back press release that listed ending pandemic among Trump's accomplishments. So that's 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 hilarious. I wonder, like, in the, it, like if he had kept it up, if that would be in Ben Shapiro's video of like, uh, here's a list of uh, uh, Donald Trump's accomplishments, and one of them being the ending of the pandemic. It says right here, see on his website, right there. Um, and I think you know, I think I actually did a video a while back of like Tim Pool's reasons why he's going to vote for Donald Trump and it had everything to do with like his accomplishments and his uh, so-called agenda regardless how vague it was um, yeah yeah so I just think it's very interesting that the president four days ago maybe five announced that the pandemic has been ended as part of his accomplishments as president even though I believe and I'm sure a lot of people are on my side on this that he has done horribly with the coronavirus response and uh, un, like, we're number one in every statistic of number of cases, of number of people dead. Like, there's no way that we can consider ourselves a success story in this when we are literally the worst, worst infected and worst mortality. It's, it's, it's a horror story. And it shouldn't be anything Trump can come remotely close to bragging about find that interesting um and i just find it even more interesting that four days after that a hundred thousand new cases as trump continues to campaign rally especially in epicenters and even as we speak right now the man is campaigning um and it's completely unnecessary because with the amount of media coverage he has and also like he could go on any I went to went to see this, but he's not he's not on stage right now. Oh god, they're selling Trump coins. Oh my god. <laughs> what a waste of silver. Um if it's real silver, it might be nickel. Um <laughs> Alright, so let's um let's see, what was I gonna look up real quick? Ah, brain fart. Oh brain. You fart so hard. Um, so yeah, we got uh, 100,000 cases, damn near, after like a week of 70 to 80, and we finished, we just topped that bitch off with 100. Oh, magnificent. Magnificent. You can't spell magnificent without MAGA. All right, uh, let's see, do we have any more headlines here to get into before we uh, dive deep? Why NASA, Boeing, Bezos, and Musk have a lot riding on U.S. This might be a little bit uh, U.S. election. 
This might be a little bit interesting read, actually. This comes from Reuters Science News. Trump's plant. Trump plans to win the race in space. Holy crap. Trump's plans to win the race in space call for a 2024 moon mission and ending direct U.S. financial support for the International Space Station in 2025. So add that to like the amount of like isolationism that Trump is contributing to. Uh, Trump wants to leave who? So Trump's been working pretty hard on that. So I'm gonna write this down because I'm I'm getting like I just want to make sure we understand how isolationist the United States is at this point. Like, never have we been this isolated since World War II started. Maybe even World War I. We were pretty even isolated then. So Trump wants to leave who? World Health Organization. In the middle of a pandemic. Uh, the International Space Station. Uh, let's see. And then he left the Paris... Paris Climate Accord. So these are the ones that I know that are pretty big at this time. One dealing with public health and health around the uh, around the globe. The other dealing with uh, cooperation in outer space. Where personally, I don't believe anybody should own outer space. To an article came out recently that like Elon Musk is going to uh, create his own laws on Mars. Um, yeah, no, not into that. Um, I mean, like, do you want to get a rapture, but in, in Mars? Like, I'm talking about Bioshock rapture. Are you, like, does he think he's the Andrew Ryan of space? Has he played Bioshock? Has he played any of these games that just show that? All right. Anyways, um, yeah, International Space Station. And then we had, as soon as he got into office, the Parrot Climate Accords, which dealt with making sure that we didn't kill ourselves here on this planet. Um, and it, I think it's to pull up this competitive nature, even though like for a lot of, I think for these three specific issues, it takes the whole planet to commit to these things. But he wants to race for American dominance, even though he has businesses all around the world too. So he, he like, we just found out recently that he paid $200,000 in taxes between 20 or $200,000 in Chinese taxes. He paid taxes in China between 2013 and 2015 while paying no taxes in the United States during that same time period. Maybe 2015 he paid $750, $750. Not $750,000, but $750 while he's paying $200,000 in China. So America first president? I don't know. Uh, the article continues, Biden, on the other hand, would likely call for a delayed moonshot and propose a funding extension for the International Space Station if he wins the White House, according to people familiar with the fledging Biden space agenda. I, you know, um, I don't know too much about the logistics, but I would like to see more people going to, 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 the, to, to the moon. I think if we can, like, actually start building stations on the moon and stuff like that, then we have a better shot of having a, you know, uh, projecting an object towards Mars. But the thing is, too, though, is that, like, I can't really wholeheartedly support space programs when we have um, 8 million in unemployment. Uh, no, there's more than that in unemployment right now, but we have 8 million that just got moved below the poverty line with a 7.9 unemployment rate. And then also, too, we have third world countries all over the place. Like, we have un underdeveloped nations on this planet, and so there's no reason to start 
a new nation on another planet, in my personal opinion. Um, let's see here. Pushing back the moon mission could cast more doubt on the long-term fate of Boeing's space launch system rocket, just as Elon Musk's SpaceX and Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin scrambled to bring rival rockets to market as soon as next year. I think that's interesting. I think that's interesting. Um, that at least you know we have these three major giants, um, these technocrats here that are going to uh, basically create. Um, compete for you know who has the better rocket that can get us more efficiently through space which you know innovation works that way i'm not wholeheartedly against it i just i don't like capitalism so there's a lot of problems that i have with it but for the most part building better rockets isn't terrible um extending support for the space station for a decade would also be a major boost for boeing whose 225 million dollar annual iss operations contract is set to expire in 2024 and is at the depths of a financial crisis caused by the COVID-19 pandemic and the 737 MAX grounding. Boeing might not be a corporation here pretty soon. Uh, Boeing and SpaceX are already supplying spacecraft to ferry astronauts to the International Space Station under a program begun under the Obama administration and supported by both Trump and Biden. Interesting. Uh, though the slowing, though slowing the moonshot would push back contracts for moon landers and related equipment, the companies aim to win. The emerging Biden space agenda appears broadly set to promote competition between traditional defense contractors like Boeing and new space rivals. So you know, not too many negatives on Biden's plan there, but I I, I can't support Trump furthering our isolation. And is another reason why um, I, I voted for Biden. You can call me a globalist. Uh, I probably am. I, I think the way we operate our borders is pretty asinine and uh, primitive. But uh, I definitely I'm going to agree with Biden on this issue that we need to stay in the uh, in, in the world stage. You know, that's kind of where we built a lot of our leadership from. And I would like to see us actually remain um, part of the globe as a whole planet. But maybe that's enough for today. Um, the America's breaking new cases and Trump wants to leave the International Space Station and compete to go to Mars. All right. To the piece of la resistance. We have Ben Shapiro recapping President Trump's first term accomplishments. Um, I'm just surprised that he doesn't have any, uh, I don't know, negative or criticism at all. But, um, you know, I guess we're going to go about this point by point. He has various points, segments here. Um, it's going to be domestic policy in the economy, tax cuts, judicial appointments, pro-life policy, Due process on college campuses. Refusal to seize power during COVID. <laughs> okay. Can't wait to get in that one. I, I haven't gotten into that one. Uh, foreign policy in the Middle East. Withdrawing from the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, okay. Uh, recognizing the threat of China, which I don't know. Uh, I'm pretty sure the United States has always been anti-China, you know, but we've been pro-China business which business has always been globalist whereas like the idea of cultures merging is is a threat 
Um, withdrawing from the Plymus Climate Accords, which apparently Ben Shapiro thinks is a positive. No new wars. And promotion of American values and Western civilization. So his last point is essentially American ex- exceptionalism. Like, he, he just, like, low-key was like, yo, plus, like, our nationalism, which is, like, low-key fascist. Yeah, it's so interesting. It's, it's very interesting to see how an Orthodox uh, Jewish man can slip into the slope of authoritarianism. Um, just because it's not anti-Semitic. I don't... All right, let's get into it. Whatever. Acknowledge it. Okay, so let's start with President Trump and his, uh, and his domestic policy. We'll get to foreign policy in a little bit. All right. So on domestic policy, Trump has been wildly successful. His economic record is virtually unparalleled for the last half century. So there's been a lot of talk about more jobs being created under Obama. Okay, but there were many more people on the sidelines under Obama. It turns out that one of the hardest things to do in a labor market is to take a labor market that is gradually moving and then move it, that additional margin, up to wild success. And that is what Trump has actually done. Wages were rising faster under Trump in three years than they did for eight under Obama. Most of those gains in terms of wage increases were actually happening disproportionately at the bottom half of the scale. We just, we, I, I got to acknowledge here that we kind of just pivoted away from like job creation to wage um, increase. Um, I'm not 100% sure. Um, it's fascinating that he conceded the fact that Obama had more jobs created under him. Um, I mean, presidents don't really create jobs. Um, but he then said that Obama had more people on the sideline as if that like actually made sense, even though like right now, right now, right now, and everybody's going to blame it entirely on, uh, COVID and the pandemic, uh, right now we have the highest unemployment since, uh, I think the, the great recession of 2008. But I'm going to type in this like mundane, simplistic question into, into Google right now just to get a stupid answer. Who created more jobs, Obama or Trump? Obama's last three years of job growth. Uh, this is from Forbes in February 2020. So this is before uh, the shutdown. Forbes here uh, says Obama's last three years of job growth all beat Trump's best year. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, if you're doing all three years, of course it's going to be more than one year. The U.S. Department of Labor released the jobs report that showed better-than-expected growth of 225,000 new jobs versus the consensus of 158,000. However, there were detailed updates with a major revision to 2018's unemployment employment numbers, which substantially decreased job growth under President Trump. Far from being the best economy ever is the next segment. Uh, let's see here. Trump's best year of job growth. Uh, okay, so... Trump continually says that, quote, the U.S. is experiencing the best economy ever, unquote. This is obvious gaslighting since the new results show that President Trump's best year of job growth was 2.314 million in 2018, the first year of the tax cut, but it falls short of any of Obama's last three years. His boasts also don't stand up when you peel the onion on... GDP growth and realize that the federal deficits during his presidency will exceed any that were not impacted by a recession. 
So even before a major recession, the federal deficit was going to rise heavily. And why is that? Because he cut taxes for everybody, basically everybody. But that's not necessarily like something to brag about too much because our government is uh, actually uh, what kind of holds the sovereignty of our nation together. So if that's in debt, like who owns our nation then, right? All right, so we got numbers here. Uh, the, the, the previous and updated job growth yearly totals for Obama's last six years in office after the Great Recession and Trump's first three years along with the revisions are 2011, there was uh, 2.075 million, uh, 2 million fell to 2.074 million, down 1,000 jobs. But in 2012, it was up 2,000 jobs. In 2013, it was down 1,000 jobs. Interesting. Hmm. Fascinating note here, though, is that in 2014, it was down 2,000 jobs, and in 2015, it hit down 9,000 jobs. And just fucking out of nowhere, in 2016, 27,000 jobs were created. Even though this, this number is very, like, relative to, to certain... Uh, factors of its time period i don't it's so weird to really equate all of this to the president exactly so in 2017 um wow we lost 44,000 jobs after 2016's 27,000 job increase and then in 2018 in 2018 when the tax cuts actually kicked in and Amazon paid negative 1% in taxes, jobs went down 365,000. And then in 2019, it went down another 19,000. These are massive numbers. And I think if you were to total all of them, it would get somewhere near 44, 365, looking about five, 500,000 there, for about 520, 520,000 estimate, very rough estimate. And that's just from the beginning of Trump to just about where we're looking at it in February. While not exceeding Obama's last three years, Trump's 2.314 million in 2018 barely beat Obama's 2.301 in 2014. So it's not nearly uh, a great talking point for for Trump to go off of the economy in this first in this first bit, especially with his uh, his job numbers actually not being that good. Obama created 1.6 million more jobs than Trump over a three-year period. It is harder for companies to find workers, and it is later in the business cycle. However, Trump boasts how many jobs he has added. Don't include that he has generated 6.5 million jobs under his presidency versus the 8.1 million or 1.6 million fewer than Obama did under the same time frame. On average, Obama created 43,000 more jobs per month than Trump. And then it says here that uh, job growth is a continuation from Obama's presidency. 
And if you can see on this graph here, it has George Bush who had a very steady, uh, steady increase and then a hard drop probably right when we got around that recession era. And we started to see that recovery and then Obama really just left him a rocket shooting to the moon. <sighs> All right, so I, I just think that's very interesting. I think that's very interesting because yeah, it's not, they keep lying for Trump about how well he's actually doing when his first presidency is really the coattails of Obama's policies. Okay, the fact is that Americans were doing unprecedentedly well under Donald Trump's economy until COVID hit. And the reason for that is obvious. Donald Trump cut taxes. Donald Trump cut regulations. Donald Trump created an environment where... I don't know how like cutting regulations actually benefits working class people. So it's not necessarily an argument to make, but like what Ben Shapiro would probably say is that, well, it frees up businesses to spread their money amongst their employees, which is not what they do. It's not what they do whatsoever. So every time Republicans really bring up the fact that we have deregulation and Trump's policy of deregulation is for every regulation you make, uh, remove two regulations. So really we ended up being in a, in a deficit of regulations. Um, and it's, you know, coupled with the, 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 the departure from the Paris Climate Accords, not a good combination. Not a good combination. So I gotta make some notes here. Um, deregulation is just not a great point for me, especially when you're speaking to working class people who would probably you know, rely on OSHA and regulations to make sure that safety and uh, public health and uh, just the common good is being upheld. So I think it's fascinating that it's always a talking point for Republicans when like when it comes down to it for the working class, it's a meaningless, utterly meaningless point to say that is a positive for. That's a big business positive, only big business positive. People felt safe and secure investing in their workers, investing in their business. There was a lot of money, trillions of dollars sitting on the sidelines during the Obama administration because you just didn't know what confiscatory policy Obama was going to pursue at any given moment. Was it worth hiring somebody only to have your taxes increased next month? Was it worth staffing up only? I don't think they can increase taxes like just like that because like even Trump had his tax bill passed in 2017 and it wasn't active until 2018. So he's being hyperbolic. In order to have to fire half of those people when the economy downs. And he's also just making an substantial claim that just like fits like the, 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 the normal Republican outlook on how like regulations and big business and big government operate, which I find pretty fascinating. Um, I, I think Ben Shapiro is, he said that there was trillions of dollars on the sideline, which he has like no evidence for, saying that people were like really holding on to their money um, because they didn't know when Obama was going to make them spend money on uh, uh, idiotic government bullshit, um, which is just a libertarian uh, objectivist point of view on things when you, you hate government. Um, so and it's just it's not really indicative from the information, because with Obama actually um, uplifting the economy from the Great Recession. If that's really true, if the entire economy is doing well, right, from the working class to the business class, 
the business class is hoarding its money because they think at some point that the Democrats are going to ask for big spending from them. I don't know. It's 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 big. I feel like business confidence was um, pretty high under Obama, and it's just kind of ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. It's a, that's a that's a ridiculous claim to make with uh, no substantial evidence to back it up. Turned. Was it worth investing in marketing, knowing that the market could go soft in any moment because Barack Obama's policy was so variable and so generally anti-business? I think like that last, uh, I think the 2016 Super Bowl had like the highest paid um, commercials as of yet. And I think 2016 was like the, 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 the most expensive election year of all time. Uh, maybe up until this one, I'm not 100% sure. But I think at those times, both the Super Bowl and the uh, elections were the most expensive of their day. So um, again, ups uh, unsubstantial claims here. Under Barack Obama, we had the slowest recovery in the history of the United States. A recovery nonetheless. And here's the thing. I'm not an Obama fan. Um, Obama, to me, is like the Democrats' Reagan, honestly. Like, they just loved the image and the persona that, they pre that he presented without fully understanding what was uh, behind the front cover of that book. Uh, most of them couldn't get past the foreword. Um, But uh, he saying that like Obama had the slowest recovery is ridiculous because it like it was the biggest recession since the Great Depression, which wasn't a recession. It was a depression. And that took what, like 15 years, if not like almost 20 years for the United States to actually get out of. So it's 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 such a. Uh, it's so uh, yeah, it's just hyperbolic uh, nonsense to to have that as a talking point because it, of course it's going to take forever to get out of that hole. But he did it nonetheless and left a, 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 um, a bottle rocket of an economy because eventually it is going to pop and we're going to see another recession because that just seems kind of built into the system at this point. But he did put it in the right direction. And he did it through, I would say, a bit of centrism. Um, he wasn't great for workers because union numbers still dropping pretty heavy, but he still did his best to ensure that jobs and resources were somewhat available while he was committing drone strikes. Under Donald Trump, the economy continued to accelerate and accelerated much faster under Trump than it did under Obama. This is he has no evidence. True in terms of wages, particularly. All right. Let's see here. Wage increase under Trump. I did see that during um, Trump's... Uh, presidency since the tax cuts uh billionaires have all gained a trillion dollars factcheck.org are wages rising or flat mm -mm 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 -mm. 
Yeah, I mean, in the 1970s, there was a massive increase for wages, but it dropped so hard in the 90s. Following Reagan's presidency, it dropped so fucking hard, and then Clinton dropped it even harder, along with George H.W. Bush Sr., and then it's been slowly increasing since Jr., um, not by much, and then going back up. But it seems like we we may or may not reach the 1970s level. We regressed really hard as far as... Uh... As far as earnings, income for production. Uh, for instance, on June 18th, Trump told a crowd in Orlando in launching his re-election campaign, quote, these are the same career politicians who presided over decades of flat wages, adding later, wages are rising at the fastest rate in many decades. And really what's nice is they're rising the fastest for the lowest income Americans. The same day, Senator Bernie Sanders, a Democrat, Democratic presidential candidate told CNN's Aaron Burnett, quote, For the last 45 years, the average American today has not seen a nickel more in real wages than he or she got 45 years ago. That's pretty crazy. Uh, the president appears to echo Sanders in saying there have been decades of flat wages. In fact, the Trump campaign pointed us to a 2018 Pew Research Center report that said the average hourly wage has just about the same purchasing power it did in, the, in 1978, following a long slide in the 1980s and early 90s and bumpy inconsistent growth since then. Um... Trump's own Council of Economic Advisors contradicts his decades of flat wages. It's not being very clear. It is true that inflation and adjusted wages peaked in February 1973 and then fluctuated but generally declined, hitting a low point in January 1996. They have again fluctuated since, but they've been on a general upward trend. They've increased 2.4% since Trump took office from an average of $308 per week to $315. Uh, it's still not that much. It's still not that much. A 2.4 increase while like billionaires are seeing like 40% increases in their profits. During Obama's last four years in office, the average weekly earnings for production and non-supervisory workers went up 4.9%. So yet again, Obama, <laughs> Obama still outdid him. Obama still outdid him. Under Clinton, they went up 6.4%. It's still not great. It's still not great because of how how hard they dropped um, under like Reagan. It, it's such a sharp drop from like seventy like seventy five, and then even harder drop in like eighty two. It's yeah. Oh, and then yeah. Let's honestly look right here at ninety is when it really hit the the lowest of the low, and so it's fascinating when you have a six point four increase under. Uh, Bill Clinton because that's relative to the amount of decrease it's already suffered. So um, the working class is really like was put into a hole between like 81 and 97, 98, which we've been slowly coming out of. Um, and who knows if we'll ever reach those sweet 70 numbers again, like who maybe someday Someday we'll be able to like have kids have a full-time job and pay off their college tuition someday again But like so far this graph here is not looking 
uh, like we're going to reach those sweet 70s numbers again. That's pretty rough. Like that is such a sharp drop that to say any increase that isn't above what 70s numbers is, is just, it's pretty irrelevant. Like until we can get working wages back to that number and then talk about increase after that, any increase is just actually stagnation because we used to have a lot more buying power back in the day. I find that very interesting. I find that very interesting. It is true in terms of living standards. It is true in terms of the, the unemployment rate under Barack Obama was significantly higher on average than it was under Donald Trump by the time of the election, uh, by the time of, of COVID. We had the lowest unemployment rate for the last 50 years. Oh, boy. I mean, like everything he keeps doing is just like compared to how Obama did. Um So I have to like keep looking that up. I'm gonna go to Ben Shapiro's favorite, BBC. Oh, actually, um, okay. Um, this was reported September, do 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 do. Obama had some pretty good GDP growth percentages. It did have a few drops here and there, which you know might be small recessions. Right now, Trump's dealing with like a deficit of thirty percent, which just recently in the fourth quarter he was able to get it back up 33%, so I think now it's at a positive, but that's also why we're seeing like 100,000 cases of coronavirus in the United States right now. Um, oversaw an annual average growth of 2.5%. The last three years of the Obama administration saw a similar level of growth, along with significantly higher figure. Do -do -do -do. I'm not looking for GDP, to be perfectly honest. I came for the unemployment. Okay. So it seems like Obama was dealing with a 10% unemployment rate, um, mainly dealing with the recession at the time. Uh, that The recession did fuck a lot of people. And we have to remember, too, that the early 2000s was also dealing with like whole-ass companies liquidating all of their assets and then paying their CEOs millions of dollars in bonuses and laying off all of their employees. The early 2000s was a hellscape for, for, for employment. And uh, we were able to get it back down to a level of at least 4% by transition, a 4% unemployment rate by transition. And it continued to decrease under Trump. And you still have to wonder how much of that is actually under the coattails of Obama because it's a trend everything in politics happens very slowly and what we're gonna see is that what is trump going to do because he's not going to inherit any economy he's going to continue on with the economy that he currently has so if he is reelected, we're going to see what trump will do with a 7.9 percent unemployment rate 
But the pandemic did bring it up to like 14%. The pandemic did fuck a lot of shit up. It did. It did. Years. So yes, Donald Trump's economic record is excellent. His economic record was really, really, really good up until COVID hit. What you'll see is a bunch of And just to recap there is that like, well, it was good numbers, but what you were doing was comparing them to Obama's numbers. Were they as good as Obama's numbers? No. I think after that research conclusively, we can say, no, they're not. So people attempting to downplay Trump's economy. But that is really wrongheaded. Everybody who runs a business knows there is a difference between operating in the Trump era and operating in the Obama era. And you could see that, right? Until 2020, Trump's first term was characterized by solid job growth, right? This is something that CNN acknowledges. Hilariously, they say at this point in Obama's presidency, the job market was up 0.4%. Okay, well, he took office at a time when we were at the bottom of the recession. <laughs> Donald Trump escalated the the employment in the country at a time when we were already so is he saying that we were like he inherited it when we were at the bottom so there was nowhere to go but up because it's not true a recession can turn into a great depression um it's just it's very fascinating and i don't think the president is the only one who can control these factors um but it's he's so he's so anti-democrat but when he like when he speaks on obama it's like almost as if like obama never did anything right and it's just that partisanship that is uh is pretty grotesque in america specifically in america again not a huge fan of obama over here mainly because he still represents everything i don't prefer in this country but um the way ben shapiro represents um Obama is completely full of biases and just untruths. It's just a lot of not true. And he doesn't substantiate any of his evidence by providing any of it on screen. It's just a video of him and his coffee mugs. Escalating employment, which is actually a harder thing to do. Median income under Donald Trump rose tremendously. Median income under Donald Trump rose 9.2% under Donald Trump. That's the median income data until 2019. Under Barack Obama, over the course of his entire presidency, it rose 5%. Okay, that is absolutely true. That means median income, median American household income, was up 5,800 bucks from 2016 after adjusting for inflation. In the pandemic, obviously... Up 1,500 bucks. Yeah, but the thing about the median is, is that it's like evenly distributed amongst like all Americans. So while Jeff Bezos' increase of like $500 billion is part of that median you know and you have fewer numbers of those massive increases and larger numbers of those lower increases and that's how you get fifteen thousand. i guess it's something kind of to brag about it is an increase it is an increase but um you know is it proportionate is it proportionate might be the best question obviously took the wind out of the sails but that is the reason, the, the economy, by the way, is recovering this quarter. We had a 33% GDP growth this quarter. Why? Because people understand that the underlying fundamentals of the economy are still strong. It's just that COVID meant that everybody had to stay home. And the, the stock market under Donald Trump continued to rise incredibly, incredibly steadily. Okay, Trump's economy was historically good. Historically good. And there's no other way to cut it.
Manufacturing jobs under Donald Trump increased. A gross domestic product under Donald Trump increased at a significantly faster rate, like wildly outpacing Barack Obama in the early years of his term. Okay, so all of the talk about Trump's economy not being all that good, it was really, really good up until March, obviously. And one of the reasons for that is because he did radically cut regulation. Diane Katz, writing for the Heritage Foundation back in 2018, October 17th, 2018, about two years ago, writes, the Trump administration on Wednesday reported $23 billion in savings from 176 deregulatory actions in fiscal year 2018. Even more consequential, the administration has issued 65% fewer significant rules those with costs that exceed $100 million a year than the Obama administration, 51% fewer than the Bush administration after 22 months in office. Naomi Rao, who's an administrator of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, now she is a, a judge on a, one of the circuit courts. She said, in modern times, the expansion of the administrative state has placed undue burdens on the public, impeding economic growth, technological innovation, and consumer choice. Our reform efforts emphasize the rule of law, respect for the Constitution's separation of powers, and the limits of agency authority. This all resulted in fewer man hours being spent complying with regulations, which means more man hours spent on actual productive activity. The administration in 2018 took 57 significant deregulatory actions compared to 14 significant regulatory actions, according to the Information and Regulatory Affairs Office data. That is a massive change. In the number of costly regulations after 22 months in office, under Barack Obama, 647 costly regulations. Under Trump, 229 costly regulations. Annual regulatory costs under the Obama administration increased by $122 billion, by the way. The administration, the administration capped its regulatory costs at $18 billion. So the cuts in regulations radically increased the possibilities for American businesses. And those cuts in regulatory action included allowing small businesses and sole proprietors to join together as associations to purchase health care coverage for employees, which was a cost-saving measure prohibited under Obamacare. Reducing red tape for skilled nursing facilities, hospitals, and home health care providers. Streamlining approval for applications for fracking. <laughs> expanding exemptions to the Obamacare contraceptive coverage mandate for religious beliefs. Right? All this stuff was really, really good stuff. Cutting regulations is a radically underestimated part of the Trump record. It's because, again, like, especially if you laissez-faire capitalism is not a uh, I don't know. It's not an ideal for me, mainly because without uh, accountability being upheld, irresponsibility is allowed to run rampant in the name of short term profit. It's just been proven. Like as soon as Exxon Mobil knew about climate change, they divested or they invested funds into climate change denial in order to make sure that they didn't actually have to change any of their business practices that were making them fuck tons of money. And now we know eventually down the line, once we have to suffer the actual consequences of climate change, it's going to cost immense amount of money, most likely taxpayer money, in order to combat it, which we want to spend that taxpayer money now and also spend the billions and trillionaire money to get that same effort into protecting and preserving the climate rather than fighting against a hostile one. But Ben Shapiro isn't pro Green New Deal and he wouldn't want to see any kind of Green Deal because like he said with the Paris Climate Accord, it's bad uh, because it would have cost money. So, yeah. Um, deregulation, again, um, 
yeah, it might free up some money for these corporations that make billions and billions of dollars. But I don't remember them suffering too hard under Obama's 600 of them. Um, some of them might have complained that they weren't making as much money as they wanted to, but it's not like they were really going bankrupt just from keeping the common good in mind. It was really, really good. Another part of the, Obama, the, the Trump record that was really, really good were the tax cuts. The tax cuts cut taxes for people across the board, which is why now Joe Biden, when he says he's going to repeal the Trump tax cuts, he finally admitted he means he's only going to repeal part of the Trump tax cuts because it turns out that those Trump tax cuts helped pretty much everybody on the income spectrum. So long as you are making an income and paying income tax in the United States, an income tax cut under President Trump's tax plan helped you. In fact, the only people attended to her were high income earners in blue states. People like me when I was living in California. Here was President Trump announcing the tax cuts. Is he not going to explain how they ended up hurting him uh, being in a blue state? Because, like, for the most part, everybody has said that uh, across the board, it was at least like a 62% decrease in taxes for, like, across the board for everybody. Like, taxes were decreased like 62% for the the people, the income. Um, even though uh, I, I think, you know, middle class people like my... My mom didn't really see any changes, and then I think I ended up paying like a little bit more, but that also might have been due to like my job change at the time. Hmm. But um, I wish he would elaborate specifically on how like people in blue states suffered from Trump's tax cuts, even though it's a federal tax law. Like, what? Would, what do you mean? What do you mean? Did, did California increase their taxes in order to deal with the federal deficit? Because that doesn't make sense. Um, so I just really have to ask, what do you mean? And we're not going to get that answer. I don't think that it was a great idea to drop corporate taxes from 35% to 21% when they already pay practically nothing. $3.2 trillion in tax cuts for American families, including the doubling of the standard deduction and the doubling of the child tax credit. The typical family of four earning $75,000, we see an income tax cut of more than $2,000. Many much higher than that, slashing their tax bill in half. And they're going to start to see that because we're signing today. They're going to start to see that in February. And this all contributed again to average hourly earnings rising fairly dramatically under Donald Trump, like much more dramatically under Donald Trump than they did under Barack Obama, the poverty rate as of 2019 was at an all-time low in the United States. About 4.2 million fewer people were living in poverty in the United States in 2019 compared to 2018. And then when a pandemic hits, more people got moved in under the poverty line uh, than, than, than we've seen in, in quite a while. And that has a lot to deal with the fact that there was no rent uh, moratorium. I know there was a lot of people who wanted to cancel uh, rent during the period entirely, not not loaning people the rent money where they would eventually have to pay rent as soon as they could, but you know, a moratorium to cut it until the pandemic was over or until sufficient resources were given to people. One round of $1,200 checks, the PPP program only really benefiting corporations. Um, you know, during the pandemic, Trump did more to protect the elite class and the wealthier than he did to protect anybody else below the middle class line. Everybody below the middle class line ended up suffering pretty fucking hard when this shit hit, 
when this shit hit the fan, that shit mostly spread across the uh, low income earners of this country forced to suffer through it so that corporations didn't have to make that big of sacrifices because what's always going to be more important than anything is to make sure that uh, shareholders and board members get their shares, get their profits, get their earnings. Quarters got to keep going up, even if that means that the people have to be moved. Eight million people have to be moved below the poverty line. That you can attribute to Trump's economic policies. You can go, oh, well, COVID fucked everything up. But how he handled it and how he directed his Senate, the GOP Senate, the Republican-run Senate, to handle that situation to keep 8 million people from going under the poverty line, Trump chose to do nothing. Mitch McConnell chose to do nothing. So you can, you can brag as much as you want about 2019, but in an actual crisis, in an actual situation that is emergency, Trump failed a lot of people. That is a major, like, again, these tax cuts, which were supposedly just for the rich people, they weren't just for the rich people. They really, really helped the economy. Cut regulation, cut taxes. Okay, and then he out. It's fascinating, too, that he can't, like, specifically say how it, it, it benefited working class families. It cut everybody's taxes. They had more spending money. Okay, great, but now we have weakened uh, uh, government programs. And one of that being essential the, uh, in 2018 when Trump uh, dismantled the CDC uh, pandemic response team. Was that because he didn't want to, the, the, the deficit now being increased by the lack of government revenue, he didn't want to spend the money on the pandemic response team and that's where those cuts ended up going? We could probably get into it. The whole forest management from the wildfires that we're seeing now, he also cut their budget. Because government revenue's down and we got to spend all the money ejaculating it. Oh, I said it, ejaculating money into the stock market and into big corporations and the military. Obviously used his presidential power to appoint originalist judges to the best of his ability. I mean, like hundreds and hundreds of them. This is largely to the credit of Mitch McConnell and the Federalist Society advisors who put together the list on behalf of President Trump. In the middle, by, by the middle of 2020, by the middle of this year, by June, the Senate had confirmed Trump's 200th judicial nominee. McConnell noted that in addition to being Trump's 200th judicial nominee, there were no more vacancies on the country's influential appeals courts. So all these vacancies have been filled by Trump and a Republican Senate. Senator Chuck Grassley, the former chairman and current member of the Judiciary Committee added he expected Trump's nominees to be in the mold of the late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. He said this landmark achievement is the result of the president keeping. I just want to note here. Uh, Politico reporting Mitch McConnell's historic. Judge blockade. The under headline here is the window for approving more Obama court picks is narrowing, but it's not slammed completely shut. Um, let's see. Supreme Court nominee Merrick Garland may be the most prominent casualty of the GOP-controlled Senate's election year resistance on the federal judiciary, but the pace of overall judicial confirmations under Mitch McConnell is on track to become the slowest in more than 60 years. And this is because Obama was in office. As soon as they had Trump come into office, the Republican, they, the fastest... 
confirmations happened. So I'm going to read a little bit here. Under the McConnell-led Senate, just 20 district and circuit court judges have been confirmed at a time when the vacancies are hampering the federal bench nationwide. He blocked, he slowed the process down, even at the detriment of the system. This happened. During George W. Bush's final two years in the White House, Senate Democrats and the majority uh, shepherded through 68 federal judges. That's pretty moderate. A courtesy that Democrats now complain Republicans aren't affording to President Barack Obama, even though Obama has more judges confirmed overall. Because, yeah, there's been hundreds, hundreds under Obama or uh, Trump. October 12, 2020, uh, King 5 News, which I think is local for Kentucky. Uh, a video of a 2019 McConnell interview went viral in the context of this week's Senate hearings on the Supreme Court nomination of Amy Comey Barrett. During Wednesday's vice presidential debate, Senator Kamala Harris said this. In 1864, Abraham Lincoln was up for re-election. And it was 27 days before the election. And a seat became open on the United States Supreme Court. Abraham Lincoln's party was in charge not only of the White House, but the Senate. But Honest Abe said, it's not the right thing to do. The American people deserve to make the decision about who will be the next president of the United States. To find out if this is true, we checked the Senate records on Supreme Court vacancies and a variety of archives on Lincoln. Short answer, we can't find where Lincoln ever said this, and it's a misrepresentation of what really happened. Senate records show that there was a Supreme Court vacancy during the 1864 election. Chief Justice Roger Taney died in October, just weeks before the vote. I don't think this has anything to do with it. didn't a replacement until after the election in December. But he never said anything about letting the American people decide through the election. Holy fuck, that had literally nothing to do with the headline. That had nothing to do with the headline. And only was an accusation of Kamala Harris fucking slipping on the facts. Holy shit. I am so sorry I fell for that right now. The article says, beneath that fucking completely irrelevant video, a clip went viral on social media of Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican of Kentucky, taking credit for federal judicial vacancies left open at the end of the Obama administration, in which he says there were so many because, quote, I'll tell you why. It's because I was in charge of what we did in the last two years of the Obama administration, unquote. That's all I wanted. I thought they were going to show the fucking clip. Here it is. I was shocked that uh, former President Obama left so many vacancies and didn't try to fill those positions. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. I was in charge of the uh, of what we did the last two years of the Obama administration. I give uh, and I will give you full credit for that. And by the way, take a bow. All right, that was a good line. All right, so God, fuck Kentucky Five for making me watch that first video for no fucking reason. Um, But yeah, Mitch McConnell actually bragged on Fox News on Hannity. Uh, saying specifically, you really, the reason why Obama didn't get anything done is because I was in charge of Obama's last two years. Uh, 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 uh. Yeah, so um, that's why Trump had so many vacancies to fill. The Republicans know how to wield power. Get, give them whatever criticism you want, but they know how to wield the fucking power like a staff 
of unlimited wishes. I like they know what the fuck to do when they have power, which is use it, implement it, and give no fucks. His word and the unwavering determination of Le Leader McConnell, Chairman Graham, that'd be Lindsey Graham of the Judiciary Committee, and our conference. Republicans have set a record pace, according to The Hill, at confirming Trump's appeals court nominees, including breaking a record for the number of picks confirmed during an administration's first and second year in office. And again, the reason for this is because Harry Reid nuked the filibuster on judicial nominees, claiming that it was necessary in order to get through Obama's nominees. Trump has filled an enormous number of judicial positions with people who actually give a damn about the Constitution, which is a radical difference from Obama judges. Obama judges typically believe that they get to look into their own hearts and their own souls and decide what the law is based on which on what they wish the law were. Trump. It's a fun, that's a pretty interesting way to like skew the, the word interpretation because everybody's going to look at law subjectively, right? You know, Ben Shapiro is going to look at it at a conservative perspective. And then also probably mix in his his religion in there because he's wearing his yarmulke, so that tells me it's pretty important to him. And also, like a, a liberal judge is going to do the same thing; they're going to look at it through their liberal uh, eyes to to then interpret the law and what, how they see it. Um, so I just think that's fascinating how he kind of made it sound like, oh, they're so into their feelings, and that's how they do their job, because his whole thing is facts over feelings. Trump's judges generally do not do this. And of course, this is most obvious when it comes to his Supreme Court picks. Despite disappointments with Neil Gorsuch with regard to his interpretation of the Civil Rights Act and his attempt to read <laughs> transgenderism into the Title IX provisions of, of the Civil Rights Act, which is bizarre, Gorsuch overall is still a textualist. <laughs> He's so mad about transgendered people being able to work. <laughs> He's so mad. <laughs> Oh my God. Oh, Jesus Christ. Just don't discriminate people, Ben. Like, it's like, they we wouldn't have to like codify it in law if people just didn't discriminate. Oh man. All right. Justice Kavanaugh is still a textualist. Amy Coney Barrett looks to be an originalist. Hey, these are all significant. What is an originalist? Like I read the constitution to how it was originally written which means do you just forget amendments is there just no amendments anymore like after a certain period because they weren't a part of the original constitution what the fuck does that mean i'm an originalist i still see black people as three-fifths people what, what does that mean honestly what does that mean only better and if hillary clinton had been president oh. here was president trump announcing the various justices that he had picked for the supreme court just as a reminder this was a major thing. Today, I am keeping another promise to the American people by nominating Judge Neil Gorsuch. So was that a surprise? Was it? Judge Brett Kavanaugh. Judge Amy Coney Barrett. Said the last videos at that super spreader event where Trump likely got coronavirus or at least spread it to a lot of his people. Okay, each one of these justices has expressed their fealty to the text of the Constitution, to the original meaning of the Constitution. They've expressed their fealty to the belief that ju the judiciary is not supposed to be a branch of government that quote unquote does policy. It is a branch of government that interprets the law as written. Doesn't mean they'll always get it right. It means they're going to do a hell of a lot better than the Democrats would have appointed. Democrats appointees generally do not care about the law as written. They care much more when it comes to the Constitution 
about something very different. They care much more about the political priorities of Democrats, which is why Ruth Bader Ginsburg could be counted on. Dear God, like, it's so... Oh. Reading, reading the con, the being a te a textualist or a, yeah, being a textualist like reading it as it is. That's the conservative point of view, and I think the 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 the, the terminology and the way he's saying it right now mostly stems from like uh, what I've seen from Amy Comey Barrett's um, speeches or lectures that she's had around uh, the the whole idea of what the, uh, I don't know, the the role of the Supreme Court. And she put conservatives as textualists who read the Constitution as it is, and liberals being a little bit like they're trying to expand the meanings in the words. And I, I'm not sure if that's necessarily how it works or if they're just trying to make a, a distinction between the two because as far as business goes like most of the business rulings they don't they're not really either conservative or liberal on either side it's either like economically uh, fiscal or uh, frugal basically um, or holding businesses accountable for certain things but this is like detrimental to the culture war for conservatives because they believe that the Supreme Court is the 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 spearhead of the cultural uh, war that is going on inside of America. And I find it very interesting that he is willing to argue that a conservative is going to look at it as the text is somehow eliminating all of their conservative biases. And yet liberals look at the text and can't do the same because they have so many feelings, they feel too much empathy. I don't know what his exact argument is because it's a little bit nonsensical. In any pinch to do the work of whatever Democratic president was in office. We are going through President Trump's policy successes this entire hour. So we've been going through his domestic policy successes. We have talked about his cuts to regulations. I find that fascinating that like, yeah, uh, conservative judges don't serve a conservative president, but liberal, um, judges serve whoever the Democrat president is. I find that very interesting. We've talked about his appointment of hundreds of judges to the federal judiciary. We've talked about his tax cuts, which jogged the economy. Well, it didn't stop there. President Trump has also appointed pro-life people to the executive branch, and he's... I just want to add that, like, his tax... Like, he never went up how... During Wednesday's vice president... Holy Senator shit. Senator Kamala Harris who's, said... Who's interrupting me right In now? In 1864... God damn. Rude. Uh, that video that was at the top of the Kentucky website that had nothing to do with what I was looking at just started playing again for no reason. But um, I find it very fascinating that he says the tax cuts were great and it really helped jog the economy, but he can't specifically say how. But like, if you use your feelings and not any facts or statistics, you could say, well, if people don't spend as much money on taxes, they have more money to spend in the economy, which you'll need statistics for because some people might actually save their money rather than throwing it back into spending. Um, and we, you know, I'm not going to analyze that for him. I'm here to analyze what he's saying. So policy. So for example, he reinstated the Mexico city policy to prevent taxpayer funding of abortions overseas. He signed an executive order stating that faith-based employers and organizations like little sisters of the poor could not be forced to violate religious beliefs to comply with Obamacare. Remember, the Obama administration literally sued nuns in order to get them. I gotta look that up. 
Obama admin sued nuns. This one says Obama's war on little sisters of the poor. Um, but I got the Wall Street Journal here, which is a little bit right-leaning. Uh, let's see. The little sisters back in court. Liberal attorney generals and judges won't leave the nuns alone on Obamacare. Oh, I got to subscribe to read. Paywall. Uh, I'm just going to read the first paragraph here. One of the sorriest episodes of the Obama presidency was the assault on the little sisters of the poor for resisting Obamacare's contraception mandate. The sisters had to go all the way to the Supreme Court to protect their religious liberty. But anyone who thinks they are home free underestimates the cultural imperialism of today's American left. <laughs> cultural imperialism. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's see here. Real politics. Um, realclearpolitics.com. I think this is also right-leaning. So, Obama's war on the little sisters of the poor. Um, this is November 11th, 2015. They're back. Actually, they never went away. But until last Friday, people had more or less forgotten about the little sisters of the poor's lawsuit against the Obama administration. Wait, I thought Obama sued them. That was until the Supreme Court announced that it will hear their case alongside six other charitable groups that are using, that are suing the administration over its so-called contraception mandate. Wait, I thought Obama sued them. It says these groups are suing the administration. Let's do a little recap. In August 2011, not long after the president had repeatedly vowed not to use his health care law to violate religious liberty, his administration announced that it would require all employers to pay for and provide insurance coverage for everything from sterilization to Plan B, a drug whose own FDA label warns can destroy life. <laughs> after much shock and outcry, the administration doubled down and the Department of Health and Human Services issued the mandate. The biggest religious liberty lawsuit in American history ensued. Yeah, but what's fucking crazy too is that like religion infringes on a lot of people's liberties, like their like women's uh right to uh abortions. Or at least the right to choose for their own body. Um that's always been a religious talking point for the longest time. Uh, I remember at a point in the Bible where women are actually property. Uh then you know, not much more, not much equal to the to the man as much as the ox. Do not covet thy neighbor's wife nor their ox. I think is the word. Um, things started to get really confusing in 2012 when the administration issued multiple tries at an accommodation. The accommodation was widely rejected by all parties, who rightly argue that conscience is not something that can be compromised. You either violate it or you don't. What is the accommodation, though? Like, can we specifically... All right, fuck it. Moving on. The lawsuits broke off onto two tracks, the for-profit and the non-profit. The for-profit cases hit the Supreme Court first, with the owners of Hobby Lobby as the face of those suits. All right. I get... So, you're, you're, you're a company, right? If you're a company and you're not, like openly religious with who you hire say you're you're hiring muslims atheists you're hiring all kinds of people you have a very diverse company but your head or your founder is very christian is it right for them to use their company to force their religious beliefs on their employees by saying i'm not going to pay for your health care such as contraceptives because it goes against my religious beliefs 
is that actual freedom on both sides? Yes, it's religious freedom for him because he gets to exercise the beliefs of his religion, but it is then thus enforced on his employees. But then Ben Shapiro and his his ilk would say, well, it's freedom of association. You don't want to work there, then don't work there. You don't have to be under that. Well, you know, I don't know how many other businesses are like Hobby Lobby or not. So it's is it really that fair for somebody to use their company as a force for their religious beliefs? I I don't think it's necessarily right, but also then it would then infringe on the owners, I guess. But should they really be using their company in that manner? I don't I don't think so. It's very that's actually pretty gray water right there. Um, but religious freedom should also mean, um, you know, people being free from the persecution of other people's religions, honestly. Um, so their lawyers at the Beckett Fund argue that an employer cannot be forced to choose between their faith or a fine solely because they are entered, because they entered the marketplace. They won. Ugh. Yep, so, I mean, the, you know, the conglomerate religious freedom went over the individual's freedom, but that's because the government was trying to mandate it, um, rather than having an opt-in, but, um, yeah, it's a very interesting case. The status of the nonprofit cases was in legal limbo until last Friday when the Supreme Court accepted the case of the Little Sisters. But between Hobby Lobby and today, we had an election. In the 2014 midterms, every senator in a tight race who had opposed the Little Sisters was tossed. Some of those senators, such as Mark Udall of Colorado and Kay Hagan of North Carolina, had actually leaned harder to the left than the president himself and tried to jam a bill through Congress that would skirt the Supreme Court's ruling in the Obama administration's so-called compromise and make everyone, no matter what their religious beliefs, pay for things like abortion drugs. How much of it is it is it actual religious freedom or is it just they don't want to like uh, it's like more public funding that they don't agree with like just another another uh, level of objectivism selfishness Americans instead elected senators who had very vocally supported religious liberty at the same time polling found that a majority of Americans opposed the mandate by a 10 point spread all the quote war on women quote unquote rhetoric that got thrown around in that election cycle was quietly packed up and shelved away doo -doo -doo -doo. um but yeah so far like uh, what, what i learned from this article here is that ben shapiro lied and that obama didn't sue them they sued obama and um obama did try to make an accommodations and try to compromise but uh they were like no 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 we're not having that so sounds uh, very very on point with what Ben Shapiro does. And to cover contraceptive care. Remember this. Trump undid that. And it's so fascinating, too, because like the religious don't really want to give proper sex education because then that would also mean going over contraceptives, because the, I think the overall goal of like Judeo Christianity is to spread the seed willy nilly. They do want you to do it um, in wedlock, lest you go to sin and your baby cannot be baptized. Um, because if you have a child out of wedlock, then, you know, that baby's fucked already. Like, you can't baptize him. Um, 
you'd have to lie to the church, which is like another just level of sins that just like kind of trap people into the idea of the nuclear family being the only thing that is within God's grace, which is just ridiculous to me because it's literally the only thing that's within the nation's grace and um, the nation is not God. I'm sorry. It may want to be God. It may want to act like God, but it is not and it can suck my dick. And I can say that because First Amendment, bitch! He implemented new rules to prevent Title X family planning groups from getting funding federally for abortion. He called on Congress to pass a ban on late-term abortions. He insisted that faith-based entities be included in the CARES Act Paycheck Protection Program be eligible for funding, so like churches would not go under during the COVID crisis. And he's defended various religious people from having their religious beliefs violated when states attempted to go after them for failures to abide by the social strictures that the left prefers. Yeah, all of that is really, really <laughs> important stuff. All of that would be undone under Biden. Imagine the social strictures of the left, which is like telling corporations to provide contraceptives to their employees, saying, hey, we want your employees to be able to have sex and not have unwanted or unexpected children. Unwanted was pretty brutal. I apologize for that. I meant unexpected. How heartless of me, truly heartless, because I think most people probably do want kids. It's just like unexpected makes it very difficult because you don't have the life plan together in order to do so. And so Obama was trying to, I'm not saying it was the right way to do it, but he was trying to force companies to spend money on population control, essentially. And <laughs> to say that it infringes on religious liberty for them to not provide that, which also, like, in certain ways, I kind of remember that it harmed a lot of their women employees. Um, I can't remember specifically because it wasn't just Plan B that was on the chopping block here. And I think overall it was, like, even just, like, um, care from... Uh, uh, Planned Parenthood, which would also look at like STDs, HIV, like, you know, AIDS and all of that stuff, like sexually transmitted diseases. So it was like a full scope of like sexual health care. But, um, you know, the religious don't want sex education and they don't want sex protection. They just want children, preferably in wedlock. And, you know, religious freedom is such an interesting word because to live religious freedom to have freedom of religion religious liberty is to live in the rigidity of the box of religion so i it's such a fascinating um little little microcosm of the american culture that we call religious liberty like this it's a paradox phrase to me like seriously it's it's very paradoxical to me like religi religious liberty free to be a born sinner who must repent and be forgiven Joe Biden does not care about religious freedom, not in any real way, shape, or form. I think people are allowed to, like, and I, I feel like Biden would agree, but I'm not 100% sure because I don't know him personally. But I, I believe that people should be allowed to worship whatever gods they are, uh, whoever, read whatever Bible, do whatever prayers, wear whatever, uh, you know, religious attire that they have. And they should be allowed to be as religious as they want to be. The, 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 the offset that I get is when people want other people to adhere to their religion. And that's kind of the problem with our Judeo-Christian religion is because everybody who does not adhere to your religion is a heretic, an infidel, 
and um, you know is uh, should not be associated with, and in fact probably should be um, uh, ex exiled if they possibly could. Because even back in the earlier centuries, when like the church and the state were one, like the monastery and the, and the church, or not monastery, the monarchy and the church were one, basically one. Um, that's exactly how it was. If you did not adhere to the faith, you either faced death or exile. And um, I can't imagine that they have really that much of a difference nowadays. It's just that we've made so much social progress that they're not even in that much control of power because of the separation of church and state and yada, yada, yada. But I am kind of afraid that they would want to return to those times. Joe Biden is much more focused on the social left agenda and cramming it down on everybody who engages in business and happens to be religious. Okay, also importantly, mm. he restored due process on college campuses. So Title IX restrictions had been used to basically suggest that colleges were allowed to run these kangaroo courts where if somebody was accused of sexual assault or sexual harassment on a college campus, you couldn't defend yourself. There were these star chamber courts where essentially you're accused of something, you don't get to confront the accuser, you don't really get to testify on your own behalf in many cases. You don't get the evidence produced against you. And the standard of proof is basically nil. And you can get kicked out of school. Anybody can allege anything. I don't know any, I don't actually know anything about this. traveling again oh my, God. my family is so weird um all right title nine simply states no person in the united states shall on the basis of sex be excluded from participation in be denied the benefits of or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving financial uh, federal financial assistance so may 6 20 this is what colleges need to know about the Title IX rules. Uh, reported on May 6, 2020, the U.S. Department of Education on Wednesday announced sweeping changes in how colleges... Wow. I don't... My ad blocker's on because I find them annoying. Um must handle sexual assault and sexual harassment complaints, bolstering protections for accused students and employees. All right, I guess I gotta use a different website. All right, August 14th, 2020, college officials across the country have been debuting plans over the past week to abide by new federal rules for responding to complaints of sexual misconduct on campus. The rules go in fact into effect to today as many colleges are preparing for the start of the fall semester or have already begun the new academic year. Some of the plans have been condemned by advocates for survivors of sexual assault who say they were excluded from the process of drafting new policies under Title IX of the education Amendments of 1972, the law prohibiting sex discrimination at federally funded institutions. Students also fear colleges will implement policies that closely align with the regulations, which have been widely criticized by survivors for not requiring colleges to respond to sexual harassment and assault that occurs off campus, among other limitations. 
students at the University of Cincinnati who are part of the campus advocacy group, Students for Survivors, or SFS, have criticized university administrators for not allowing input from the organization on the university's policy changes. Grace Cunningham, a 2018 alumni and founder of SFS, said the group is concerned the university will use the federal regulations, quote, as an opportunity to limit responsibility rather than uphold survivors' rights, unquote. Cunningham also noted that Cincinnati has a history of not taking survivors' concerns seriously. In 2015, Cunningham reported that a former Cincinnati student raped her off campus. She noted that similar reports of sexual assaults would not be addressed under the new rules. Cunningham said the university declined to pursue her complaint because her alleged assailant was no longer a student when she reported the assault. In a June 1st letter from SFS to Cincinnati President Neville Pinto, students underscored the, quote, devastating consequences that implementing the new regulations would have on victims of sexual assault. The group also outlined demands for any changes to Title IX policy, including that university officials use what's known as the preponderance of the evidence standard for determining whether uh, sexual misconduct occurred and keep a general 60-day limit for officials to fully investigate and close complaints. These two measures are allowed but not required by the new regulations and according hmm. Hmm. Multiple sections within the rule give schools discretion to choose how policies are implemented, the letter said. We urge the University of Cincinnati to commit to taking sexual violence seriously by choosing the options that would create the least harm for student survivors. Hmm. The new regulations explicitly state that nothing prohibits colleges from addressing sexual misconduct that occurs outside, quote, an education program or activity, unquote, with the same process used for misconduct that occurs on campus or in college programs. Although it's not required, according to the regulation document published May 6 by the U.S. Department of Education. Princeton, U Princeton University, for example, will implement both a Title IX sexual harassment policy and university sexual misconduct policy, which are interrelated and must be read together. The university's policy will address conduct falling outside the jurisdiction scope of the federal Title IX regulations. Hmm. It's fascinating that we even have to have this at all because we could obviously use um, our court's due process in order to figure this out. Jake Sapp, a Title IX legal researcher for the Stetson University Center for Excellence in Higher Education Law and Policy, said Princeton's setup is not unique to them. Sapp, along with Peter Lake, director of the center and NASPA, Student Affairs Administration in Higher Education, is helping to lead a virtual Title IX certificate program that trains college administrators to implement and carry out the new federal procedures. Many of the program's first 100 participants were interested in and had uh, questions about creating these dual processes. Uh, Some sexual harassment complaints must be dismissed under the new regulations if they don't meet certain criteria, but the department doesn't have the authority to say what we can't cover under our policies. Hmm. But Title IX administrators will have to be very careful to use the appropriate process for each formal complaint of sexual misconduct. First, ensuring there is a preliminary investigation of whether a complaint should be handled with one process or the other. Hmm. 
That was something that they did just this year, so I find it fascinating that he's throwing that on there, the list of achievements. The U.S. Department, uh, long awaited, uh, it took nearly a year and a half for the Department's Office for Civil Rights to review more than 124,000 public comments on the issue and finalize the proposed regulations, which were published in November 19, or November 2018. The regulations will be the first Title IX guidance published by OCR to go through a formal notice and come comment process since 1997 and unlike guidance issued by the obama administration in 2011 to 2014 they will have the force of law behind them colleges and universities will be required to comply with the regulations by august 14th hmm. new evidence and cross-examination standards have been points of contention for advocates which survivors Questioning could re traumatize. Hmm. This is a very complicated issue that I don't understand all the nuances for. So I think it's very uh, fascinating that Ben Shapiro is willing to just side with it. The rule balances the scales of justice on U.S. campuses and fulfills promises by the Trump administration to address college sexual misconduct, DeVos said on Twitter. Thank you, fucking Twitter. A statement from the White House said the new regulations ensure even-handed justice and address the bureaucracy of American colleges and universities that often uh, stack the deck against the accused. The regulations also strengthen the Title IX and the interests of survivors, the statement said. Hmm. So... All right, so I guess here's a summary of the changes. So uh, changes to current Title IX practices, what experts say are the most significant aspects of the new rule. Point one, colleges and universities will now be required to allow cross-examination of the complaining and responding parties as well as any witnesses during a live hearing led by institution officials. Cross-examination will be conducted by advisors for parties, including legal counsel, but not the parties themselves. That's pretty rough to cross-examine a, a, a survivor because they may be traumatized, but um, I guess they just don't believe women enough um, that they have to like cross-examine them in front of everybody to make sure that they tell the truth, I guess. Colleges are only obligated to respond to reports of sexual harassment that occurred off-campus if the location is in use by an officially recognized student or institution organization such as recognized fraternity or sorority housing or athletic housing. All right. I like that. Uh, that's uh, are only obligated to respond to reports of sexual harassment. So if it's not at any of these places, hmm, it has to be an officially recognized student or institution organization. I think what is missing from this uh, bulletin here is not only recognized student, but also teacher. Um, colleges will be able to determine whether to use a preponderance of the evidence or a clear and convincing standard as a burden of proof and must use the same standard for all complaints, no matter if they involve student or faculty misconduct. Hmm. So without a reasonable doubt standard. 
Um, stalking, domestic violence, and dating violence are now officially considered examples of sexual harassment under Title IX. That's, that's good. The definition of sexual harassment is more narrow than previous guidance. It is, oh, that's good. It is defined as any unwelcome conduct that a reasonable person would find so severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive that it denies a person equal educational access. Reports of sexual assault, dating violence, domestic violence, and stalking do not need to meet the description of, quote, severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive. All right. These bullet points I'm not wholeheartedly against. Colleges are not obligated to handle complaints of sexual harassment that occurs outside the United States. This means any harassment or assault that happens in American education programs abroad would not be covered up by Title IX. Why? Why not? But the new regulations say institutions remain free to apply misconduct policies for programs abroad if they so choose. It's such a weird loophole. Because if, you're, if your administration is creepy enough to be like, well, it was in Italy. <laughs> like... Oh God, it's such a weird loophole. Like if it's a if it's a if it's an official of the institution, why not just cover every base that the institution is involved in? Why 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 give a loophole? If a Title IX coordinator receives multiple informal complaints of harassment against a single respondent, they will not be required to begin a formal complaint process. The department changed this requirement from the proposed rule, which sought to obligate Title IX coordinators to take action after receiving multiple what, what, what? So this bulletin says that you don't gotta do shit if you have multiple informal complaints. So, you know, everybody better make them formal or else they ain't gotta do diddly dick. <laughs> it's just like, what? Okay. All right, hitting some points here that are kind of asinine. Colleges can no longer use a single investigator model, which has one official tasked with investigating, uh, adjudicating, and in issuing disciplinary actions against respondents. Uh, the regulations instead require three separate officials to work through separate pieces of a single Title IX complaint process. A Title IX coordinator who receives reports of sexual misconduct and investigator to gather facts, okay, okay, that's, yeah, all right, that's not bad. Uh, colleges must train all personnel involved in the Title IX process and publish training materials on their websites. Training must involve review of the new rules definition of sexual harassment and the scope of the application of Title IX to college programs and activities, how to conduct a formal or informal process and how to serve impartially, including avoidance of prejudgment of the facts at issue, conflicts of interest, and bias. I do see some holes and problems, but like for the most part, I don't think it's the worst. I don't think it's the worst thing we could have done. Um, colleges must provide evidence related to allegations to parties and advisors at least 10 days prior to requiring a response. And parties will not be prohibited from speaking about the allegations. This means doing away with gag orders. Not a fan of that one. At least 10 days. Does that mean... Yeah, so at least if you can... What the fuck? Hmm. At least 10 days. Okay, so a minimum of 10 days, they have to look at the evidence, which is not bad. But the, the gag order... Um, 
Mary Strange, because that's just gonna feel like fuel gossip and kind of muddy the water the same way that like Fox News and OAN does. Is like, oh, if the, you know we put out a little information, that's just enough. We don't we don't have to we don't have to flood the gates. We just have to put out a little bit, and they'll you know that story is out there, and you just let it float. The final bulletin here is colleges are not obligated to follow a specific time frame for responding to reports of sexual misconduct. They are instead required to have reasonably prompt periods of carrying out each step in the Title IX complaint process. Um, I think for the most part, I don't... I do see some problems. Cross-examination live in front of everybody seems to be a little bit of a problem for me. And then also the loophole of being out of the country seems weird uh very weird and then also um not including teachers um in the reports is very weird you know but i i, I would hope they actually at, at least just take that seriously without having it required by law so reaction to the rule, the education department was met with a wave of criticism as soon as the regulations, which were as equally anticipated as the final rule, were published. Several higher education associations and members of Congress urged the department for weeks to hold off on the release to allow colleges to focus on the impact of the coronavirus pandemic. The American Council on Education, the umbrella membership group of 1,700 college and university leaders, said in a statement uh, that the education department is not living in the real world by issuing the rule now. As a result of the pandemic, virtually every college and university in the country is closed. Choosing this moment to impose the most complex and challenging regulations the agency has ever issued reflects appallingly poor judgment. We pleaded with the department to hold off issuing these regulations at a time when campuses across America are shuttered until further notice. Faculty, staff, and students are doing their best to adjust teaching, learning, and research to a new world without any personnel interaction. It is a time of high stress and heroic efforts and extraordinary adaptation. Um, yeah, so now I'm finding it very interesting that they had thrown this out there when, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's like completely unnecessary right now as people aren't on campuses and uh, the like. Um, and I think recently, um, what did Betsy DeVos say? She said something. She said something ridiculous recently. Yeah. There's an article here that says Education Secretary Betsy DeVos sued over 455 times. Gnarly. There was a. Uh... Let's see, what did she say here? It was just a couple of days ago. Oh, DeVos says here, uh, not my job to track school reopening plans. So, you know, um, rather than focusing on like how she could help schools reopen safely, um, she focused in on like the sexual harassment regulations in a time when like it's not necessary. So it seems more like a talking point yet again for like the Trump administration or it's uh, maybe when schools come back, it'll be useful. But um, for the most part, yeah, it just it's coming at a time when it's completely and utterly useless. And apparently it requires new staffing. Um, this guy said a lot of people are going to be out of compliance for an entire academic year. The timing of this is really difficult for higher education late in the budget cycle during a crisis and when they don't have money. Um, this guy says this is irrational, unrealistic, and completely at odds with the Trump administration's oft-repeated statement to tread lightly when imposing complex new regulations.
the f this final rule respects and supports victims and preserves due process rights for both the victim and the accused, Alexander said in a written statement. For example, the rule ensures victims get the support they need to change classes or dorms if they allege they have been sexually assaulted or sexually harassed, and the rule ensures the victim and the accused get a fair hearing to resolve such allegations. I'm glad Secretary DeVos undertook this rulemaking to help give more certainty to victims, the accused, and college administrators. Uh, yeah, this is... Uh, yeah, this is starting to become more hogwash now that I'm remembering that most college campuses are closed. And um, it's just like a bulletin point for Ben Shapiro because of like the whole Kavanaugh uh, conversation we had back in 2018. It was really, really horrible. Under the Barack Obama administration, that was redone. Betsy DeVos' secretary, the secretary. I'm so sorry to waste so much time on that. I really apologize. Of education, the Department of Education, they redid. The, uh, the way the due process is performed on college campuses under Title IX. Here is Betsy DeVos announcing that change. Justice without fairness is no justice at all. So the way to a better Title IX justice process is not to undermine rights, but to uphold them. The way to a better process is not to reform it, but to replace it. The way to put an end to the crisis of confidence on too many campuses is to rediscover the fundamentals of our founding on which our framers staked their futures for the sake of ours. Okay, that of course is exactly right. She was ripped up and down for this. It was a gutsy decision by Betsy DeVos and the Department of Education, but a very, very important one because the left has basically suggested that if you want to process, this means that you're speaking up on behalf of toxic masculinity that is not right to process. Everyone is entitled to it. Hmm. I know a lot of folks on the- So I mean like for the most part, if it's sexual conduct on the level of like actual state and federal crimes, you can just take it directly there. But if you're having like other issues that like, uh, again, you can go to the law for this. So it's very interesting that we have to have these regulations specifically for college campuses. I didn't go to college, so I don't necessarily understand. So I don't know if like, if a student's like, I'm being sexually harassed by this student, I either need to move move classes or do something about this and they just didn't hear it before which is possible but i know for the most part like there's just been this kind of culture in uh universities and fraternities of just uh sexual misconduct that you know is all part of the machismo mindset so it's it's going to be interesting to see how all of this kind of turns out when we have uh college campuses again but so far you know it just actually does seem pretty pointless right now it seems like a very uh, pointless thing the left don't necessarily believe that. They believe that cops should immediately be hauled before courts for the evil of having done their jobs in many cases. They That's an interesting way of like um, saying that we want to see accountability for cops because if a cop murders somebody, they should face the same kind of due process that a criminal or uh, a suspect, any murder suspect should face. There's no reason that a badge should hide you from the same kind of due process that any other murderer would have to face. And if the due process is righteous and it is justice, then the cop, if doing his job correctly, would be absolved of all criminal charges. Somehow cops are pinned against due process and it's unfair to them is what he's arguing maybe, I don't know. Um, it seems pretty asinine to me to say that. Would people just wanna see accountability. They believe that if you are Justice Brett Kavanaugh, being slandered with allegations of gang rape should be enough to bar you from the federal bench. But the Trump administration... Yes, if, if, if he committed gang rape, he should not be a Supreme Court justice. And there was no criminal charges 
applied to this. It was all upon the Senate to figure out whether or not that mattered to them. And it did not. And so the Senate confirmed him. Has pushed hard for due process. Speaking of policing, the Trump administration has been very supportive of police across the country. Unlike the Obama administration, which crammed down ridiculous consent decrees that achieved nothing and actually increased crime rates in major cities across the country, the, uh, the Trump administration... Unsubsta uh, unsubstantiated evidence proclaimed there. Just, or unsubstantiated claim with no evidence. Sorry, my brain... Uh, he just he just accused and left no like my, my evidence is my word. Administration has done no such thing. The Trump administration has stood by police as well. They should. We'll get to sort of ideological difference. Ideological difference. How did we jump from Obama's consent laws to like Trump's backing of the blue across the country? The uh, the Trump administration supportive of police across the country. Unlike the Obama rape should be enough to bar you from the federal bench. But the Trump administration has pushed hard for due process. Speaking of policing, the Trump administration has been very supportive of police across the country. Unlike the Obama administration, which crammed down ridiculous consent decrees that achieved nothing and actually increased crime rates in major cities. What does that mean? Obama dis consent decrees? So ProPublica, let's, we're going to dive into another rabbit hole here. ProPublica reported uh, the Obama Justice Department had a plan to hold police accountable for abuses. The Trump DOJ has undermined it. This is reported September 29th, 2020, completely flying under the radar of most news. Uh, the Trump administration has not aggressively enforced existing agreements to monitor abusive law enforcement agencies, emboldening them to fight reforms. The article says it was caught on tape. A Seattle police officer lunged into the backseat of a patrol car. The black woman detained inside had been combative, but she already had her hands cuffed behind her back. Still, the cop punched her in the face, breaking an orbital bone. The Seattle Police Department moved to, the fire, to fire the officer for excessive force, but in November 2018, the cop's union lawyer was able to convince an arbitrator to overturn the termination. The implications of the incident went beyond the officer. The entire Seattle Police Department was under an agreement reached with the Obama administration Department of Justice because its officers had a pattern of abuse similar to the incident in the patrol car. That agreement, known as a consent decree, forced the department under tight federal oversight until it reformed itself. The, the, the Seattle police had already made a string of changes, including ending unconstitutional stop and frisk and improving training. So this is probably one of those deregulations, not for big business, but for more government apparatus that Ben Shapiro is proud of. Um, because backing the blue these days, I guess, means no oversight whatsoever. Like, the police will police themselves. Um, so, let's see here. District Judge James Robart was shocked. In a, in a filing, he accused the federal government of reversing its position on the, quote, old accountability systems inadequacy and doing so, quote, for the sake of political expediency, unquote. So with consent decrees, that's, yeah, that's, I guess it's a, uh, it's, it's a court-appointed independent monitor. Huh. 
So I don't, again, I just don't really see this as a positive, especially like this is, that, that that's a very tone deaf positive when we speak about like the grievances of Black Lives Matter. He's across the country. The, uh, the Trump administration has done no such thing. The Trump administration has stood by police as well they should. We'll get to sort of ideological, difference, ideological differences between the Trump administration and the Obama administration in just a second. Then we get to... Hmm. So I think that's very fascinating there that Ben Shapiro says, but back, backing the blue is essentially just not holding them accountable to anything that they do. If they're, if they're doing their jobs, they're just following orders and then should be absolved of any responsibility or accountability if they are to fuck up. And yet, if something happens, he'll say, we, we, we need more police training and we do need to hold bad cops accountable. And, and then he reverses his whole position if something is to go wrong, like I feel like he, if he is going to talk about the way that Derek Chauvin sat on George Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds, when you bring that up, he would say, oh yes, that was egregious and something other than that should have been done. Although he had a lethal amount of fentanyl in his system. But at the same time, he would admit that there was wrong policing in that act or at least misconduct. But then when it comes to actually holding cops accountable, let's just not and say we did. Seems to be the Ben Shapiro way. And I cannot back that kind of blue. Um, but we're about to reach two hours <laughs> out of 17 minutes of Ben Shapiro's video because we actually do fucking research when we listen to Ben here on Talks News. So if you know anything about my podcast, um, I upload it on Anchor, which is free to everybody. So if you want to make a podcast, go to anchor.fm and do it. Just fucking do it, homie. And then send me your podcast on Twitter at as a wave, A-Z-A-W-A-V. That's where I get most of my uh, uh, my social distance uh, camaraderie going. I want to thank you for joining me on this first broadcast. It seems with um, another 17 minutes to go in this video, I'm going to have to make a part two. And so what that means is I'm going to have to end the podcast in order to upload it properly later. And I will continue the stream because thankfully I have the right kind of music to do so right now. But I want to thank you for joining me on this first half. I hope it has been informative on uh, the partisanship and hackery biases that Ben Shapiro uh, implores on his listeners. Um, no freedom of thought, um, no challenging whatsoever, just undying loyalty to a president who somehow represents his ideals for this country when we really look at it is actually scared the rest of the globe of what we're doing. Um, so I'm going to play some music here that is not going to get my channel muted. Um, it's from Brock Hampton's Technical Difficulties while I get the, the, the stream, or not the streaming, but the uh, podcast recording set back up. And also uh, I'm going to grab some more coffee and water. So we will be back shortly after this brief message. And I ain't taking no, no more. Them niggas grew up on school. 
What the fuck, dog? Now we getting back to the beginning. The game of scrimmage. I played the finish. Remember them old days? I was fucking around with women. We was backing up them drives like we was finished. Running around Corpus two door. I explore and hit the gas, then he floor it. We just slugged off for some.